Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. Guys, we have a fantastic episode for you today in defense of maximalism, in defense of Bitcoin maximalism. And who is the guest? Someone you'd never expect, Vitalik Buterin. <laughs> it's defending Bitcoin maximalism on this episode. You'll see why in a minute, but the episode breaks it down into a few parts. First, the defense of Bitcoin maximalism and then a rebuttal. The only person that can debate Vitalik effectively is Vitalik. Mm -hmm. That's what I realized in this episode, and he does that throughout it. So listen for a few things, a few takeaways. Number one, we go through the case for why Bitcoin maximalism is right. Uh, we talk about number two, honest crypto versus grifter crypto, the difference between the two. Number three, the case for why intolerance is good some intolerance. We talk about that. Number four, Vitalik's advice for bankless about how bankless should talk about alt layer ones. And number five, and this is actually at the start of the podcast, green tea plus red wine, <laughs> the best drink you've never had. It's now called the VB. So if you go to your <laughs> local bar and ask for a VB, they should know what that is by now. Give me a buterin, please. <laughs> yeah, one uh, I'll take one. What did you think of this episode, David? Yeah, people thought that Vitalik's article was an April Fool's joke just because he released it on April 1st. Also, fun fact, this is not Vitalik's first article that he's released on April 1st that has raised some eyebrows. Vitalik, in my mind, steel manned the argument for Bitcoin maximalism better than I've ever heard any Bitcoiner argue for like why maximalism is good. And he really puts it into perspective as to it's pretty compelling. It's like, oh, this is why some of the properties of the crypto industry are the way that they are. Every time I talk to Vitalik Buterin, I feel like I understand this industry just a little bit better, a little bit more insightful, and a little bit more empathetic as to why people have made the choices that they've made. Uh, and so he still mans the argument for maximalism, but then we flip it around and do the other side of the debate, as you said. But we also get into other subjects like Okay, well, how is Ethereum maximalism manifesting in your eyes? And how would you rate it on like a healthy versus unhealthy spectrum, especially as it relates to the alternative layer ones? Because, Ryan, I know in the bear market 2018 to 2020, it was really two cultures. It was the Bitcoiner culture and the Ethereum culture. And it was really the Ethereum culture asking for legitimacy from Bitcoiners, trying to prove ourselves to Bitcoiners like, hey, we're a legitimate thing. We share some of your values. And Bitcoiners were like, no, you guys are all just like, you guys have broken everything. You guys don't get it. On the flip side of things, now that that bear market's in the past and Ethereum has indeed proven out to be the ecosystem that we all thought it was going to be in that bear market, now we aren't really arguing with Bitcoiners anymore. Now we're arguing with alternative layer ones. But we're taking the same position that Bitcoiners took to Ethereans. And now Ethereans are taking that same position with alternative layer ones saying, right. hey, you guys are compromising on crypto. You guys are like doing all these bad things, blah, 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 blah. And so we asked Vitalik about like, you know, where is the sweet spot? Like, is there a sweet spot? And we get his perspective on that. And I think that's really the takeaway for this episode. Yeah, it's funny, David. I no longer have arguments with Bitcoin maximalists. No. Like, I just don't anymore. Just but don't. I have those arguments with finance bros now. All the time. On the yeah. other side of things yeah. that don't care about decentralization. It's less arguments. It's more kind of reminders as why we're in this space and why it's right. important. So First, we were we arguing with the gold bugs of the crypto industry. And now we're arguing with the fintech <laughs> people of the crypto industry. Yeah, and that's funny because it does position Ethereum as kind of this middle ground. Mm -hmm. It's big tech 
intent, but it's also intolerant in some ways because it does value a specific set of things and does not want to compromise on that. And so, I don't know, we'll talk about this more in the debrief, which by the way is available to premium subscribers, David, but I'm really enjoying the 2022 version of Vitalik. Spicy Vitalik. It's every every vintage. Every year you get a different vintage of Vitalik, right? <laughs> and so far in 2022, Vitalik's been a bit more spicy, a bit more, um, I think he's previously felt his role is to be maximally credibly neutral mm -hmm. and understate his true opinions. In 2020, I'm starting to see a lot more of Vitalik's opinions. In fact, at one point in the episode, he's like, what would you rather see? A neutral version of Vitalik or like a Vitalik that states his opinions, even if they're not correct sometimes. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's always option B. And so this is the side of Vitalik that we're seeing in vintage 2022. And I think comes out in this episode. So you guys are really going to enjoy it. Again, it's like, we don't talk too much about tech mm -hmm. with someone who's a massive tech brain. He is as much a brain on philosophy and the social layer of crypto as he is on tech. And for me, those are some of the most fun conversations and some of the most interesting. Although we do have to get him on again to talk about like tech. what's in store for the Ethereum roadmap. Maybe next time he comes on, we'll do that. So guys, strap in, enjoy this episode. It's going to be grab a blast. A VB. Yeah, grab a VB with us. Dude, are you going to try that, by the way? I think I have you to. you try one of those? Yeah. We should do it. Everyone's trying it out on Twitter and they're all saying like, oh, this is better than I expected it to be. All right. Well, you know what? We're going to record the roll up. And if you got some green tea, we'll do it then. But anyway, guys, grab yourself a Vitalik Buterin drink and we'll get right in the episode. Hey, Bankless Nation, we're super excited to have Vitalik Buterin back. He's the founder of Ethereum. He's a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. You know him very well from previous appearances on Bankless. Vitalik, it's great to see you again. How are you doing? It's uh, great to see you too, Ryan. Good to see you, David. You know what? This whole episode is going to be on the topic of maximalism. Hmm. But before we get in, there was some recent Twitter hubbub Vitalik on beverage cancel culture hmm. that I want to get you to weigh in on because you made the case for this green tea and red wine combo that I think sent the world in a tizzy where you said you enjoy 85% green tea with a mix of 15% red wine. Can you give us the case before we begin the regular podcast? I think this needs to be heard. What is the case for the green tea and red wine combo? I mean, and can we cancel you for that? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, this isn't like a uh, regular part of my life or anything. I uh, <laughs> okay. only uh, tried it a couple of times. The first time, pretty accidentally. Uh, basically, what happened uh, was I was sitting on a plane with a friend, and he uh, had some uh, green tea and some red wine that he separately ordered and intended to drink separately. And at some point, he went to sleep. And then the steward people came and uh, they yeah, offered me food and I was hungry and I wanted the food, but I wanted to be able to like have the food and also do laptoping at the same time. Right. So I needed two trays. And so, okay, I thought I have one tray. My friend has another tray and like, but this, my friend's tray has these two drinks on it. And so, okay, fine. Well, I have to like get rid of them somehow. So, you know, why not just drink them? Um, so they both happened to be half full. And so I decided like, why not? Um, and I just like mixed them together and drank it. Um, and, and uh, I just realized that like, wait, wow, this is like weird, but like less disgusting than I thought. Um, and uh, I, uh, I tried this again um, and like it was, uh, I don't know, surprisingly better than advertised, I guess. Would you say that this is now your drink of choice? Um, I mean, I, realistically, my drink of choice is still like 85 green tea, 15 more green tea. Uh, but um, 
you know, it's uh, good to have more things on your menu. Oh my God. Are people trying to cancel you for this opinion or are they more intrigued? I feel like I'm far more intrigued. This is not, I don't know how someone would cancel you over this, but I guess there's someone out there. Hmm. Oh yeah. I wonder like, is the internet, um, like angry over that tweet um or when i uh, looked like a version of tom brady that was on meth for two years uh, that was amazing we got to talk about that too so how did you first of all that article in time was absolutely phenomenal but um god people are so mean on twitter yeah. like what is up with that and like how do you like respond to that and deal with that i guess you just get used to it um like uh you know, eventually you just kind of like realize that like, okay, you know, you can just think of them as being kind of like, you know, Voyak NPCs that only really exist on the internet um, and uh, like don't really pay too much serious attention about them and just kind of realize that, uh, you know, the kinds of things that they say are actually yeah, a reflection of themselves much more than they're a reflection of you. Oof. And uh, Oof. I guess, I don't know, eventually you learn to laugh about it. How long did that, because you've been having to fend off internet trolls mm. for a really long time, since mm -hmm. since before I would say even crypto was even dominant on crypto Twitter, mm -hmm. like going through like the whole you know Bitcoiner movement in the early days of Bitcoin before Ethereum was even a thing, I would imagine, was there toxicity back then? And then where was like this first instance of like internet toxicity that you had to contend with? And how have you just dealt with it over the years? Definitely started in 2014. Um, and I mean, it definitely like hurt more in 2014 than it does now. Um, I think because back in 2014, I still had this mindset that like Ethereum is this great new crypto project. Um, and, uh, it should become a standard bearer for the space. Um, and it should be kind of like we should like try really hard to do it well so that like all parts of the space love us. And I was just totally not clued in about the extents to which that was actually completely not possible even then. Mm -hmm. Um, right. Like this was then, uh, Bitcoin people started, um, I think like after, really after Ethereum began, uh, kind of having this line that like, oh, uh, you know, if, uh, it's not Bitcoin, it's not legitimate. Well, like there was a little bit of that in uh, 2013. Uh, there was that article from uh, Bitcoin Kravis, and I wrote an article against uh, him on uh, Bitcoin Magazine a couple of months before the yeah, idea for Ethereum came. Uh, but um, in 2014, it really kind of went to another level. Uh, people were kind of very strident um, about this uh, maximalist viewpoint um, and st uh, starting to kind of take all sorts of things as uh, evidence that Ethereum is a scam. Uh, and uh, there's, I mean, some people expressed their uh, viewpoint in, um, you know, reasonably polite multi-thousand word blog posts that I could, uh, you know, lob a multi-thousand word blog post back at. Uh, <laughs> but uh, other people uh, were definitely preferred to use more, um, I guess, uh, low IQ uh, means of uh, dialectic. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know, that's... That definitely made me sad at the beginning, um, and eventually, I guess, I was able to sort of emotionally write them off, um, and uh, then, yeah, I don't know, since then it has gotten easier. Like, I think in general, um, like, people being mean on the internet feels worse when it's people you respect. Mm, like, if it's totally people agree. you're just able to kind of dismiss and, um, you know, mentally put them into this kind of box of, you know, oh, they're, like, they're not people, they're Voyak NPCs, then, like, it's... Uh, Really doesn't hurt at all, um, but uh, like 
the feeling of realizing that someone who you thought was someone that you respect, like actually turning out to be in that other box, like there's definitely often a shock to it. I don't know. We are currently going through something like this at Bankless, but I think we'll get into that perspective towards the end of this episode. Vitalik, this was a great way to actually start off this episode because we're loosely talking about the ideas of maximalism to some degree, which properties of maximalism have exuded out beyond Bitcoin and is now part of many, many different ecosystems in many, many different flavors. And you recently put out an article on your blog titled In Defense of Bitcoin Maximalism, happened to be released on April Fool's Day. (laughs) Uh, And so was this an April Fool's joke? How much of this was satire and what percentage of this was actually serious? And why did you release it on April 1st? Mm. I mean, I think... uh... I definitely released it on April 1st because like, it's definitely not a uh, reflection of uh, kind of what I think my uh, like primary opinion is. Um, I think uh, in reality, it was like, there's a collection of things, like some of which I think, uh, you know, have something to them that the Ethereum community is underrating um, and others of which like also have something to them. But in reality, there's a uh, much bigger argument for the other side that I think uh, maximalists are not realizing. Like, my actual position on a lot of those issues tends to be pretty, I guess, uh, concave. But so, you know, like, I see the kind of benefits of both sides. And like, I see the benefit of kind of having some aspects of that culture, but not having it way overboard. So it's uh, definitely kind of intended to be, you know, some combination of like both being fun um, and being in exposition of uh, kind of the... uh, aspects of uh, Bitcoin maximalist culture um, and kind of how people justify them as I understand it. So let's go through maybe the case for this. Sure. Because you gave a fantastic case for Bitcoin maximalism. And I want to start there. Maybe we'll do kind of a sweep of the case for Bitcoin maximalism first, like Steelman, the argument, and then go back and see where you might actually disagree and be a bit more concave in your thinking on it. But, you know, this blog post was all about the case for Bitcoin maximalism and defense of Bitcoin maximalism and why Bitcoin maximalism is right. So you started, I think, in a really good place. And anyone who's been in crypto sees this war of two worlds, probably. Maybe it's not as binary as this, but this is how Bitcoin maximalists might paint it, where we have honest crypto on one side. These are well-intentioned networks upholding the values of decentralization and crypto and all of the things, the best parts of our industry. And then we have another whole side of crypto that you call grifter crypto, which is, you know, scammers who come into the space and do not uphold the virtues of crypto and are just here to kind of pump and dump and exploit the community and are not trying to build something for the long run. Can you talk a little bit about Honest Crypto versus Grifter Crypto and the case for Bitcoin maximalism at a high level? Sure. Um, So I think the kind of distinction between the two should be kind of intuitively pretty clear to everyone, right? Um, Like there's... uh, Cryptocurrencies that are very kind of both like actually mission driven and clearly not driven just by a uh, desire to take over the world and make money out of it, right? Like plenty of like even Bitcoin core developers don't really end up getting very much Bitcoin out of it. Um, and even um, a lot of early Bitcoiners who ended up choosing the big block uh, side of the yeah, block size war, like Gavin Andresen, right? Like I, I believe. He had a huge amount of like Bitcoin at the beginning, but then like he and I think either selling a bunch or giving a bunch of it away, right? And like this happens to a lot of them, and like they were uh, really in it for the mission uh, rather than being 
in it just as a way of kind of screwing people and getting money. Like there's a very kind of deep uh, political vision uh, behind what these things are. Like they uh, know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to create a new form of uh, you know self-sovereign money that's uh, resistance to confiscation, resistant to manipulation, resistance to um, inflation and uh, all of those things. Um, and they're kind of pretty deadlocked on uh, trying to make that happen. And uh, grifter cryptocurrencies, on the other hand, like they tend to sort of virtue signal, um, you know, general purpose goodness, like, oh, people love freedom. Well, let's talk about how we're going to bring freedom. Oh, people love social justice. Well, let's talk about how our cryptocurrency brings social justice. And, uh, you know, oh, people love making money. Well, let's talk about how, how uh, we're going to make money. Uh, and the visions feel uh, very unfocused. The uh, the main kind of principles of the cryptocurrencies are often not developers. The uh, project is structured in such a way that the kind of very early principles are going to get a lot of money out of it. And they'll even get a lot of money out of it, even if the project only kind of succeeds for two years and then fails. So... Like if you just scroll down, um, you know, CoinGecko and you just look through the list of cryptocurrencies, right? I think uh, like on the grifter side, there is a definitely a spectrum, like there's total scams and then there's projects where like the project has no value and like maybe some people honestly believe that it has value, but they really should know better. Um, and uh, there's just no chance that it will really come to much of anything long-term. Um, but like they just look uninspiring, right? Like there's, you know, like payment coin number 34 or like some <laughs> like yet another quote of like something else uh and like a very large number of cryptocurrencies are that sort of thing right i don't know i'm trying to like think whether or not i should give examples or whether like i've been spicy enough and used up my current controversy budget for this year already <laughs> um but uh, <laughs> there's uh we can save that for a different episode vitalik if you want i want to get into the mindset and like the context of when and how certain projects are built. Mm. You alluded to this a little bit. I want to go down this path even more. Mm -hmm. Some projects seem to be built with a context of, you know, the world is good. We can build whatever we want. We'll build this future utopia. There aren't any problems in the world, but we have this new solution. So we'll build for that. And then there's a different perspective where the world is a dark, desolate place. We need what you called our file of Galadriel, I think if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm -hmm. It's a hostile environment, and we need, need by necessity these solutions that will lead us out of the dark. And I think people that are building with that mind frame are building something more sustainable, and people that are building with kind of perhaps a naivete about how awesome and lovely the world is are building something that is a little bit closer to the grifter camp just because they aren't actually incorporating the fundamentals of what this whole industry is all about. Can you just elaborate on this perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like the the link between the yeah, kind of naive people and the grifters is that the naive participants kind of often end up enabling the grifters, mm -hmm. right? Because a position of, uh, you know, the world is nice um, and uh, we're this happy community and, um, you know, you should trust people by default. Like that's a... Uh, a mindset which, uh, you know, grifters can very easily come in and like extract lots of money from people. And at the same time, like it's uh, a mindset that like even in the absence of grifters, you can easily take it to the extreme and end up creating something where like you just stop realizing why the blockchain parts are important and you end up creating a system that's just like 
becomes more and more centralized in order to be efficient. Because like, if the world is this nice, happy friends where everyone's friends, uh, then uh, what's the point of uh, you know, like the user experience uh, not like not being as friendly as it could be? Um, and in order to achieve that, you end up adding more and more centralization, and eventually. Like you just know that at the moment where decentralization ends up actually being required, like the project will not actually be able to survive, right? And then the question is like, well, what was even the point of building a chain for this instead of like building it on AWS, like possibly adding a couple of extra Merkle proofs on top and that's it. And like often the answer even ends up being that if you create something that's a blockchain, mm -hmm. you can make and sell a token for it, right? And uh, if you make and sell a token, then like here kind of we get back in to this idea that like, well, now this is going to enable grifters because while it's uh, making a token is a very easy way for people to come in and just grab a lot of money, you know, pretends to work for a couple of years and then all kind of go retire and go on vacations. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, um, you know, if you take this uh, kind of more... A conservative approach that kind of assumes less about the world and like creates something that tries to be a light in dark places when all other lights go out, um, as uh, the uh, file of Galadriel um, is supposed to be. Then you know you've created something that is uh, less useful a lot of the time. That's like less powerful a lot of the time. You know, like as I said in the post, it's not a low cost light. It's not a fluorescent hippie energy efficient light. It's not a high performance light. It's a light that sacrifices on all of those dimensions to optimize for one thing and one thing only. To be a light that does what it needs to do when you're facing the toughest challenge of your life and there's a friggin' 20-foot spider staring at you in the face, right? So the idea is that, um, you know, it's not very useful at first, it's not very useful at first, and then, you know, something happens and you realize that, like, oh, wait, you know, this thing actually is really useful. And uh, I think, uh, especially given kind of the way that the world has gotten much more chaotic in all kinds of very unfortunate ways over the last three years. This uh, idea that, uh, you know, even if the world looks kind of very stable and plain today, it might suddenly be very different and you might suddenly have to kind of scramble to protect yourself. Like that should be something that's uh, easier for people to relate to. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very easy for people in the first world who have fantastic access to financial services and banking are like, why do we need this whole decentralization thing? Like my bank works perfectly fine. Meanwhile, we have a war going on in Eastern Europe where all of a sudden there is internet censorship and you know coercion and all of things of this nature. And in your article, you write, we live in a dangerous world and protecting freedom is a serious business. And you follow with a blockchain at its core is a security technology, a technology that is fundamentally all about protecting people and helping them survive in an unfriendly world. Can you just elaborate on this perspective when it comes to blockchain design? Why should we be prioritizing security above everything else? And what do we have to lose if we don't? I think it's that security is like the thing that a blockchain has that other things don't have. So if you just compare a blockchain to say AWS, for example, right? Like what does a blockchain have that AWS doesn't have? It just has this very high guarantee of reliability that like it's not going to shut down on you. Um, it's not going to disappear because the original operators get bored. And it's not going to disappear just because one particular government gets angry at the original operators, right? It's uh, like you know that it's going to stay and uh, you can feel comfortable building on top of it. And you can feel comfortable that it's actually going to follow the rules that it says that it's going to follow. So the uh, idea here, right, is that like... 
the maximalist mindset is that instead of trying to go for, you know, quote, you know, minimal viable decentralization or minimal viable security, it's like, well, no, like blockchains are focused on security and they should try to kind of occupy that part of the design space uh, as well as they can. Um, and then applications, like maybe, um, you know, individual applications could be kind of part blockchain based, part off, depending on what their individual security needs are. Vitalik, this is something that I think resonates with me and probably David too, and maybe many of the members of the bankless Ethereum community is kind of a case for maximalism really is because we see a lot of newer entrants in the space that are maybe, the maximalists might argue, not taking their responsibility seriously, mm. right? Like we are trying to build a foundation for a decentralized world. And if that foundation is easily corruptible, is not rock solid, then everything built on top of it will fall eventually. I guess I'm curious about that. When you look at some of the newer entrants, the alt layer ones and others that, that are coming to the space, do you think they value the same things that the maximalists value? Or do you think this is a massive dilution in the value system of crypto with newer entrants and newer chains? Mm, um, I think uh, like there's definitely some uh, value dilution happening. Um, and like part of the like maximalist mantra that you see in the wild, right, is this idea of like Bitcoin, not crypto. Like it's actually trying to kind of rhetorically separate, um, you know, the crypto space as a whole, which they view as being this increasingly diluted morass that like keeps uh, on uh, going further and further away from like actually being this very secure and decentralized thing. And like Bitcoin or kind of their one particular kind of very small group of uh, particular cryptocurrencies that uh, in their view, like stick to much stronger principles and are much better than the rest of the space. One of the themes that I've noticed, Vitalik, is that these newer layer ones that tend to compromise on decentralization, all are, they're all newer. It's really Bitcoin and Ethereum that made it through the bear market of 2018 to 2020. And I think it's mainly just those ecosystems. Like there's still Litecoin, there's still Bitcoin Cash, but not really. And so all of these newer alternative layer ones, which are made, they are formed in what I would call good times, never went through the bear market. And there seems to be a dividing line between Bitcoin and Ethereum, who strongly, strongly prioritize decentralization, and then these newer alternative layer ones that come after the bear market that seem to not prioritize. What do you think about the timing of these things? Why does there seem to be a, both a line in the sand behind the older chains and the newer chains? Mm. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so this uh, gets to a uh, section in the middle of my post where I, I argue, um, in general, the earliest projects in an industry are the most genuine, right? And like this is a yeah, pattern that... Uh, you could see in cryptocurrency, this is even a pattern that you could see in the internet as a whole. Like, I think a lot of people have this kind of general mindset that, uh, you know, the quality of like discourse on the internet was uh, higher, like, say, 15 years ago than it is today. Um, you know, back then it was much more highbrow. You know, there were forums. Like, the highlight was that you would have, uh, you know, libertarians and uh, socialists peacefully, but, uh, you know, passionately arguing with each other in long form with these big five paragraph things. Um, and, uh, you know, today, um, relative to that, like, uh, you know, I uh, open up Twitter right now and I uh, click on my tweet um, and attempt at simplified single secret election. And I scroll down, first response, who is the richest person on earth? Question mark. <laughs> Self-quoting. Who is the richest person on earth? Question mark. At Elon Musk, at Jeff Bezos, at Bill Gates, at CZ Binance, at the Binance NFT, at Mobox underscore official. Hashtag NFT art, hashtag rare item for sale. 
Second response uh, by PigPig154. <laughs> I love Vietnam and baby Zorro Inu. Um, third one, Guillermo Herboso. Um, thought I would let you know that they are using an interview you did with Lex Friedman to scam people. Uh, I mean, it's fair that he responded with this, but you know, the thing that he responded to once again is uh, not the, something that's much common today than 15 years ago. Some other, Vitali, um, 87135965. Asylum Finance provides asylum token with automatic staking and compounding capabilities, as well as blah, 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 of 395,677% for the first year. <laughs> right? So, like, this is uh, not what internet discourse was like 15 years ago, you know, even with the trolls. Um, and, uh, the you know, you can see this with uh, not just discourse, also, like, projects, um, like... Uh, a lot of the most successful open source projects uh, tends to be ones that have this sort of very long history to them. Um, and one of the dynamics that I think make this happen is that when a field is very new, like it's still very clunky, um, it's still very difficult to wrap your head around, the costs to get in are high, and your ability to actually make that much out of it is still fairly low, right? Like even if you make something very successful, then... Your expected user base is like a few thousand people, and whenever the user base gets bigger, like someone else might end up out competing you and using like a copy of your ideas anyway, right? Uh, so the kinds of people involved at the beginning, like they tend to be, you know, the idealists, the tech geeks, the activists, the enthusiasts, and like people who are genuinely excited about the technology and the potential of the technology to improve society. But eventually, once the technology kind of becomes more established, then, you know, the audience becomes much larger, it starts kind of diluting, the community starts kind of regressing to the mean a bit, um, and, you know, you start getting, like, basically business people coming in that actually do see an opportunity to uh, make money out of the space. And the best way to make money out of the space is to basically kind of, like, piggyback off of the high status of the, like, uh, genuine enthusiast projects that came earlier by planting yourself in the same category um, as them, but actually, like, basically being a money grab, right? Like, that would be the argument for why, like, you know, the really terrible money grabs tend to be the more recent ones. Now, I should say that there still are, like, kind of many very decent and um, honest um, kind of cryptocurrencies and projects that are fairly new. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some very good ones that are, like, not, um, not even on the chart as well. You know, it's the, a lot of the ones on the chart um, have a lot of virtues to them. But, okay, now we're kind of getting to the counter arguments already, <laughs> right? But, uh, like, the idea is that, uh, you know, if you just kind of, get um, teleported in the middle of a random industry and you have to figure out what to trust, like generally trusting things that have been around for a really long time is a very safe bet. And like the fact that it is a safe bet in turn kind of creates this compounding effect because it means that people who come in who are trustworthy, they tend to be want, they tend to want to be among trustworthy people. And so they go there. And so it kind of becomes this kind of magnet for relatively trustworthy people. And like, that's a very hard dynamic to unseat. Now, I mean, you could unseat it and like you could have the less trustworthy thing win with just an overwhelmingly powerful network effect. But like even if you do that, like you've won the network effects, but you haven't really won the trust. Mm -hmm. There's a pattern that I've noticed in crypto that I want to get your check on. Uh, and it, it seems to be kind of unfolding many, many different times in many, many different arenas. Um, but the pattern I've noticed is that first... At the very center of crypto, there are very real fundamentals, right? Talking about security and just like all the true properties that were invented when we invented blockchain tech. So that's one, at the center, there's real fundamentals. Two, 
the real fundamentals bring in the true believers that see the potential of these fundamentals. And so now we have both fundamentals and true believers. But now that there are true believers building these things, step three is that it brings in like the moon boys and the grifters who produce alternative things that are tangential to the real fundamentals, but are less about the real fundamentals. And then the next step is four, the rest of the world gets distracted by those things and they can't see Number one, the real fundamentals. And then the last step is that the true believers get really frustrated because all these people are focusing on this industry, but not the right parts of this industry. Do you resonate with this process and this like kind of flow of how this industry has developed? Yeah, I think a lot of that is definitely true. Yeah. And how do we avoid that? How do we fix this problem? Do you consider this a problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think... Uh... So this gets to the section that probably yeah, got people riled up the most, which where I talk about uh, you know how intolerance is good. Mm. Like basically the argument there is like if you want to like preserve a particular culture, especially in an environment where the dominant culture is something very different that you don't want to become, then your culture has to be really strong and it has to be able to kind of actively resist and fight assimilation. Um, it has to actively resist and fight entryism, like projects that do not reflect what your real values are, uh, trying to kind of position themselves as having the same values as you. Um, and, uh, be willing to um, even offend people, uh, be willing to uh, just like tell people like, no, you're not one of us, and uh, be willing to even say those kinds of things to people who are potentially friends of your friends. Like basically just fight hard, right? Like basically just uh, kind of fight hard and kind of keep on reasserting what your values are and uh, keep on preventing things that don't reflect those actual values from presenting themselves to the yes space as though they're a genuine part of the space. Now, is this toxic maximalism or is this healthy maximalism? I think this question gets into the territory where I start arguing against myself. So, okay, uh, I don't think we're ready for that yet. <laughs> let, let's not go there yet. But is this Vitalik why we sort of see, you know, notable influencer Bitcoiners taking pictures of themselves with guns and talk of citadels and talk of you know, running nodes on satellite internet connections mm -hmm. and almost this celebration of toxicity, mm -hmm. which to outsiders seems kind of bizarre, but it sort of makes sense when you look at it of the lens of, as you said earlier, we live in a dangerous world, protecting freedom is serious business. So you need an intolerant minority to go protect it. Is that how you explain some of the Bitcoin maximalist culture around guns and, you know, citadels, but even things like running your own node. I think, uh, yeah, here we do probably want to distinguish between like performative toxicity and performative weirdness. And so like this section, I kind of talk about the value of performative toxicity. I um, mean, in the next section, I think I talk more about the value of uh, performative weirdness. So the example that I use is the Bitcoin or war against uh, seed oils, right, which are like vegetable oils that are high in uh, omega-6 fatty acids. They're kind of everywhere in many kinds of like food and especially kind of, you know, foods that we would, you know, quote, consider more artificial and that, you know, that are actually pretty unhealthy. For the record, I consider myself part of this crusade. <laughs> yeah, no, but these oils are kind of, you know, they're very accepted in the mainstream, right? So the reason why I think Bitcoiners are attracted to this kind of crusade is because it allows them to kind of have this feeling of, um, you know, 
we are in this select group and, uh, you know, we have these opinions and these opinions are kind of something that binds us together. Or at least uh, even if we don't agree on the specific opinions, so like just uh, kind of agreeing on the broader principle that kind of there are these uh, like weird things are and uh, easily can be correct. Um, and the yeah, mainstream is uh, not very trustworthy. And just generally the fact that like you don't need uh, social approval from the wider kind of group outside of uh, you know your community in order to be able to do something right. Uh, so doing things like talking about Bitcoin nodes on satellites, you know, running nodes. I mean, I do think a big part of it, like you know, is genuinely believing that like running a node is important to prevent people from taking over the network and kind of like fifty-one percent of the miners pushing like bad protocol rules through, and like running them in space provides a bit of redundancy. But I think like there is this very big secondary uh, kind of aspect of like we're doing this kind of hobby and we in our in-group understands the value of this hobby. You know, you guys in the out-group do not understand the value of this hobby. And this is kind of a yeah, social bonding thing that uh, kind of brings the community even stronger together. I do think this is important because I think uh, many in crypto sort of fail to recognize that there are really two stacks we're talking about. One is a robust and defensible technical stack you talk about. And Bitcoiners express that in like fixed supply, 21 million hard cap, no smart contracts, low complexity, all of these things. But then what we were just also talking about is number two, in a robust and defensible culture. You have to have like this culture stack. And this is also maybe you know, some of the reason for this concentration on currency, like just currency as the use case, just money. Mm -hmm. What is Bitcoin here to do? It's here to be a money, just one thing and do it really well, a store of value currency for the world. It doesn't want to get into all of the other crypto use cases. Can you talk about that a little bit? Why does it make sense from a maximalist lens to focus on currency as the app? Mm. I mean, one is that I do think it's a pretty important app, and I do think it's an app that people easily forget because like, it's not sexy in some ways, right? Like, it's more fun to work on, you know, fancy optimized constant function market makers or weird kind of collateralization math or like decentralized governance mechanisms or whatever. And uh, just making a payment system that's clean and works well is kind of not sexy in the same way. But in reality, like payments are like the largest proven use case of crypto and lots of people are benefiting from uh, payments today. And so if you have a culture that focuses on payments, then like in some ways you actually do have more universal appeal than, you know, if you start focusing on a kind of a hodgepodge of these uh, random other things, right? Like, well, I mean, I should say, yeah, you know, obviously, yeah, you know, you're not going to have a universal appeal uh, because, um, you know, there's big aspects of uh, maximalist culture that uh, like turn huge numbers of people off. But Payments are, um, there's something that people in the US care about. There's something people in Latin America care about. People in Africa care about them. People in China care about them. Um, and just like plain and simple payments, you know, they do have this aspect of kind of being this uh, common language, right? And, uh, you know, you don't really have to agree on much else in order to be able to agree on just like the value and importance of uh, being able to pay uh, and uh, being able to save money, right? So I think uh, that's uh, definitely one of the aspects. Um, and then there's also this uh, kind of technical um, aspect where I think uh, a lot of people don't appreciate the technical case for like basically being a payments only blockchain. Um, and like the reason why it's uh, kind of hard to appreciate, right, is that from a technical point of view, at, you, like, the kinds of opcodes that you have to add to make a uh, blockchain like Bitcoin general purpose 
is actually not that high, right? Like there's uh, like a whole bunch of different uh, proposals for adding what they call covenants into Bitcoin. Um, and those proposals only require adding like a couple of things, right? And adding a couple of things already lets you do some pretty complex things inside of the yeah, Bitcoin script uh, protocol. The reason why it's hard is because if you add like rich statefulness, if you add the ability to have this kind of, you know, Cambrian explosion of more complicated applications on and kind of surrounding your chain, then those applications kind of risk like kind of actually interfering with the chain and interfering with the ecosystem, right? So like I talk about uh, minor extractable value as one example of this, like basically when um, you have these more complicated applications, uh, you're more likely to have applications that uh, give a large economic benefit to like, whoever manages to get the next transaction in, right? Like in Bitcoin, you don't really have much of that, right? You can theoretically make it anyone can spend a transaction, but like most UTXOs in Bitcoin, like basically, you know, like all of the ones that people use with any regularity, they're UTXOs that can only generally be spent by one person. Unless there is like a very exceptional case, like a hacker, and you notice that you've been hacked in real time and you have like a gas price war against them, right? But when you have more complicated applications, like Uniswap, for example, that gives kind of like arbitrage profits, then there is an incentive to be the first one to put in the next transaction. And then that creates an incentive to create these sophisticated algorithms to try to optimize uh, for the ability to collect on these opportunities. And that leads to a centralization of miners and centralization of stakers. And so, you know, because of that, like for the last one and a half years, we've been having all of this NEV and Flashbots uh, discourse. Um, it talks about like, well, how do we actually prevent the economies of scale in MEV from spilling over into either like censorship opportunities or uh, centralizing the uh, Ethereum uh, validator ecosystem, right? So like if you just are too simple and dumb that like the applications that involve MEV can't be built at all, then you're protected against that, right? It's like the simplest and dumbest solution. So do you think that's true that MEV really just can't exist on Bitcoin? You're asking me to, re to, uh, to rebut myself again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, don't. Don't, no, we'll get no, to no, that. We'll get to that. Uh, but but that, yeah. is the that is the case, is basically MEV is exactly. far that's less possible yeah. um, on Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and then I also talk about this kind of less technical layer zero form of sy systemic contagion, where like if you have a blockchain that is not just a currency, that is also these other things, and that is more like appealing to normies, then you're going to get like more normies that become part of the ecosystem. You're going to get more of these like different kinds of people that are part of the ecosystem. And they might have different trade-offs and values in terms of governance. So like they might be more willing to make an EIP to let's say print another 5 million Ether in the hands of the Ethereum Foundation because that is going to pay for developers to make Ethereum a great system, right? Whereas, um, you know, if you're Bitcoin, then you're like, you know, yo dog, we, we barely need any developers. We're just a pet rock. There's also like that aspect of safety as well, right? So like, I guess those things together are basically the technical case for why focusing exclusively on being money makes for better money. Um, and then the social case, like basically is that, uh, you know, the more you exclusively focus on being money, the more kind of density in your culture you have of these memes that, you know, 21 million is really important. Being sound money is really important. Being censorship resistant payments is uh, really important. And uh, the more that uh, kind of those memes can, um, you know, resist 
attempts from the outside or from the inside to change them. There's been sentiment from like, I've seen this expressed by uh, Jack Dorsey as well, right? In this like anti-Web3, anti-Ethereum, like Mm -hmm. Ethereum is kind of the chain for the VCs, like this Mm -hmm. pushback against Web3 use cases Mm -hmm. and sort of this positioning as, no, Bitcoin is money. That's the thing the entire world needs, right? Right. Emerging countries, like emerging economies, as well as the West. Whereas this Web3 thing is just for a bunch of fat cat VCs who are like blockchain advocates. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that is actually going to help the world in any way. Do you see that sentiment being expressed here too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the yeah, aspects of this worldview really are tied together, um, right? It's like, if your blockchain enables like the grifter stuff from or it just enables like more stuff um, at a technical level than like those other things that get enabled are potentially going to be like um, taken over by grifters more easily. And uh, you know, if you have a uh, culture that kind of values, um, you know, innovation, then you start getting like, kind of these uh, kinds of actors that care about innovation, but don't really, um, you know, understand uh, kind of other values that make the blockchain as uh, valuable as it is. Um, so I think like all of those things do kind of tie them together in some ways. Just to add a, a little bit more perspective onto this, Bitcoiner culture has always been about how do we reduce, reduce, reduce about the Bitcoin blockchain. It's it's more about soft forking features out of the blockchain rather than soft forking features into the blockchain. And I think it goes into this conversation of just like, how do we strip all aspects away from Bitcoin that's not about Bitcoin being money and the perspective is that how do we like to reduce the maximum surface area of attack for bitcoin how do we just make it a rock solid money mm-hmm. and i think like the merits of this we can definitely contrast especially when we just had for example like the 600 million dollar axie sidechain hack like you're not going to get hacks like that on bitcoin simply because you can't have DeFi on bitcoin i mean there are centralized exchange hacks And that's kind of the trade-off that Bitcoin has made. But overall, I think centralized exchange hacks have gone down where DeFi hacks has gone up. Mm. And this is like one of the Mm -hmm. liabilities of an expressive blockchain where you have DeFi attacks, you have DeFi exploits. Mm -hmm. You also have people like, you know, losing funds to scammers because there's like, you know, NFT scammers out there. And again, can't do NFTs on Bitcoin. Um, What lessons should we learn from this perspective? Or do you think that we've already covered it? Yeah, I mean, I think like the perspective can definitely be applied to a lot of cases. Like, uh, there's definitely a big part of me that, um, you know, does kind of like half think that uh, the world would be better off if DeFi innovation stopped uh, sometime in 2020. Um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, the side of me that's like a yeah, like die and rhyme uh, a maximalist, like uh, probably you know die rye maybe USDC are like the only three stable coins that we really need. Um, and uh, like the others are like, well, come on, like if uh, if the world had an intelligent planner, he would have never hired anyone to build them. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, like, you know, I do see the the value in uh, ongoing innovation. And like the, there's definitely, um, you know, projects that are getting under recognized that are trying to actually do something even better in the same spirit as, the, um, as those two. But there's also these other projects that are just doing kind of insanely risky, um, you know, under collateralized, barely collateralized sort of stuff and that are trying to like basically market themselves on how optimal they are um, without uh, 
uh, really yeah, caring about the kind of like how fat their fat tails are, mm-hmm. right? Like basically, yeah, I think the biggest fallacy that people have uh, in terms of like judging stablecoins, for example, is that I feel like the way that a lot of like especially newbies judge a stablecoin is they're like, if a stablecoin's price stays between 0.98 and 1.02, then it's like, okay. If a stablecoin's price stays between 0.99 and 1.01, then it's good. And if a stablecoin's price stays between 0.998 and 1.002, then that's like really good, right? And like that mindset is very wrong, right? Because whether a stablecoin like jumps up and down by 2% or 0.2% isn't a function of how good the stablecoin is. It's a function of how good the market maker is. And anyone can hire a good market maker for a short period of time. The So the way that you should judge stablecoins is like, how well can they survive ex- really extreme situations? And Maker does have a history of surviving some pretty extreme situations. Like it survives the Ether price falling by 93% over the course of a year and a bit. Um, it survives the, Bitcoin, the, the Ether price falling by like 50% in a single day. Remember, this was the COVID uh, Black Monday or Tuesday or whatever. Black Tuesday, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the... Like it dropped from like, was it like 180 to 90? Um, and uh, like no die holder got hurt. Like the only thing that happened is like the first layer of defense got broken and like 15,000 maker had to get printed as a second layer of defense. And like, uh, you know, that was definitely a bit of a scare, but uh, you know, still like that's what the yeah, second layer of defense is there for. Uh, that was like the craziest uh, market price event of like possibly uh, Ethereum's entire history aside from maybe the Dow fork. And uh it survived it just fine. So that's like basically yeah, like judging systems by how they work during the worst case um, instead of uh, during the average case is something that's like very unintuitive to people, especially people coming from a more centralized mindset. But it is uh, something that is like we do really need to do, especially in the crypto space. All right, Vitalik, before we turn the tables around and ask you to, again, argue the other side of the debate, I want you to zoom out and just view this whole entire maximalism topic from a holistic perspective. What is your most legitimate steel manned argument for why maximalism is good? Um, I think the best zoomed out description of all this is not even from myself. It's from Slate Star Codex. I'm just looking this up right now. I think it's called a thrive-survive theory of the political spectrum. The, yep, yep, yep. That's exactly the title. A Thrive Survive Theory of the Political Spectrum. I'll uh, send it over to you in the gram. It's uh, basically like it really, yeah, like it does a great job of kind of describing these two possible worlds where one is like a, a utopia and the other is a zombie apocalypse and how like very right leaning values make sense in a zombie apocalypse, but are just totally stupid in the utopia. And a lot of left leaning values make total sense in the uh, utopia, but are suicidal in the zombie apocalypse. And like, I think if you want, like, just a yeah, kind of, like, 30,000-foot view on, like, what the dynamic is, um, I yeah, highly recommend just, uh, you know, reading that post. I, I, know, I find it excellent. Um, but I, I, the way that I would basically yeah, summarize it is that there is this kind of great divide of uh, are you acting like the world in which you're operating is fundamentally fluffy and safe, or are you acting and thinking like the world that you live in? is uh, fundamentally a place where if you uh, turn your attention away for even five seconds, the tiger is going to run out of the left side of the visual field and it'll have its uh, teeth already around your neck by the time you can react. And, uh, you know, the maximalists uh, take uh, one side of that uh, grand uh, civilizational question. Okay, Vitalik, so we've just gone through a steel man argument for why maximalism is good, in particular Bitcoin maximalism. Now I think it's time for you to tell us where you actually disagree with that. 
So I know this post was somewhat of a thought experiment, and there are aspects of it you probably agree with and aspects that you disagree with. So how would you address the steel man, Bitcoin maximalist argument? What do you disagree with? Sure. Uh, so I think the core of my disagreement, uh, you can think about it as uh, being centered around the title of the first section, right? The, the title of the first section in some ways uh, is uh, like the theme of the uh, essay, right? This idea that uh, we live in a dangerous world and uh, protecting freedom is serious business. And I think the way that I would flip that statement around in order to rebut it is to say we live in a dangerous world and therefore having friends is more important than ever. <laughs> um, so like one analogy here is that if you look into like geopolitics and how like large nation states act, for example, right? Like uh, when a uh, nation state feels threatened, like often it does tends to kind of act in ways that we consider evil more often, right? Like it uh, starts disrespecting human rights more often. It starts, uh, you know, running over the interests or sometimes even the territory of smaller countries beside it. Um, it uh, starts, uh, you know, generally not caring as much about, um, you know, what people think of it. Um, it says uh, like more willing uh, to act internationally in ways that are more selfish and that like don't really uh, align well with international norms. Um, but at the same time, like the smart ones, they do generally have at least have some sense that like there's a limit to how much they're antagonizing people. And ultimately, there are some allies that they're trying to get, right? Like generally, yeah, you know, they don't literally go out and just like lash out and try to attack everyone, right? Now, you know, yes, you know, there, like there's uh, that uh, crazy Austrian guy that uh, tried to basically attack everyone at the same time about 80 years ago. But, um, you know, he did get sn smacked very hard for it, right? Um, and uh, there's even a lot of arguments uh, that uh, like the way in which he tried to like, basically make a, an enemy and a subhuman out of pretty much everyone like really really did um hurt even his military situation so i think uh, basically if you want to kind of act in a dangerous world like even if you're willing to use that as an excuse to not be a nice guy like there generally you still want to like figure out like who you really care about keeping as friends, who you really care about uh, keeping neutral instead of making them your enemies, who you want to only be a medium enemy instead of being a, a complete and total enemy, um, and kind of acting pragmatically within that light, right? And I guess uh, a big part of my uh, worry about uh, maximalist culture is that it's really just not good at doing that. Like it is needlessly antagonistic in a lot of ways, right? Like it's... Uh, antagonizes the US government, uh, it uh, antagonizes like all, you know, large country and small country governments to some extent, except, um, you know, maybe El Salvador. It uh, antagonizes um, other cryptocurrencies, it uh, antagonizes, um, you know, people who like gold. Um, like basically, it feels kind of very antagonistic on all sides. And it's even antagonistic against people who really do genuinely want to be on the same team as them, right? And uh, this kind of approach, I think it really does run a risk of uh, like basically just uh, giving you much more enemies than uh, you really need to have and like ultimately uh, seriously cutting into your chances of success. I think uh, 
like a lot of it comes from this mentality that if you can convince yourself in your own head that your cause is just and that you're obviously right and within your own head the battle for some idea has been won then like you run the risk of basically assuming that that battle has been won among all people that you care about and uh, you basically act as though the world is a split between people who unconditionally agree with you and people who you can safely dismiss as enemies and then you just proceed from that assumption right and like sometimes i think that like a lot of uh, projects and people who make really serious mistakes actually end up making this kind of mistake so like one totally different example that i might give is uh, russ albrecht from uh, silk road right like uh, one of the uh, ways in which you could describe the kind of big mistake that he made well, he made multiple mistakes, but like one of them is basically that, you know, he acted as though what he is doing is clearly 100% legitimate in the eyes of right-thinking people, and therefore he should just kind of go ahead and keep doing it, and his only response to everyone else is basically anonymity and you can't catch me. And it turns out that, you know, hey, if you're still living right in the middle of the United States while doing all of this, like even the you can't catch me thing is actually not that strong, right? So the whole thing about like uh, him accepting that uh, kind of like or participating in what ended up being a sting operation that attempts to kill several people like just a whole bunch of like small decisions that he made they were kind of like very maximally kind of pokey and aggressive at you know both the u.s government and even probably alienated a lot of moderates uh, who if he had taken a very different strategy could have uh, possibly considered him as a kind of civil disobedience uh, worthy of uh, some uh, protection and the reason why like he made i think he made that mistake is basically because he had this attitude that you know within my own head clearly you know libertarian morality is correct and the battle uh, for my heart has been won um, and therefore kind of accidentally projecting that assumption to therefore the battle for the hearts of all good people has already been won and you know everyone else is uh, basically not convincible and um, you know we might as well just like treat them as something that uh, we're kind of 100% fighting, right? And the reality is that the world never works that way, right? In any conflict, there's lots of neutrals, and in any conflict, there's lots of mild enemies, there's lots of mild friends, and there's a lot of value to be gained in, you know, convincing a neutral to stay a neutral instead of becoming an enemy, uh, convincing a uh, mild enemy to stay being a mild enemy instead of being an extreme enemy, convincing a, uh, a neutral to become a uh, slight friend instead of being a neutral, and just kind of going all, all the way along that spectrum, right? And the way that like kind of maximalist culture really creates these um, us versus them divides, I think really causes them to basically needlessly sacrifice goodwill among a lot of people. So that would be the core of my criticism, right? That like basically, yeah, like having friends is uh, good. And having friends is not a luxury good. In fact, if you live in a dangerous world, then having friends becomes even more important, right? Like friends aren't just there to, you know, have fun and like saying rainbows and unicorns with. Like you actually do need friends, you do need allies, um, you do need people being neutral instead of being enemies. Ultimately, Bitcoin is a uh, political project that exists in the context of this very complicated uh, global political system. And... Like maximalist culture, um, I would claim just like makes lots of needless uh, kind of diplomacy sacrifices when it doesn't have to.
Now, one thing um, I would probably add to that case is that, like, if you go around the world, one of the things that you'll find is that there are lots of people who just like totally like Bitcoin and totally understand it, um, without seeming like they're the sorts of people that would vibe with maximalist culture. And I think what's happening there is that, like, actually. Maximalist culture is not very universal. Like I think it's uh, primarily kind of an American and maybe to some extent sort of U.S. cultural sphere of influence thing. Like you know, I remember a few years ago when I went to a, a Bitcoin meetup in Malaysia and I spoke at a Bitcoin meetup in Malaysia. And like basically, it was just an Ethereum event. And like you know, the person who does the Malaysian Bitcoin community also does the Malaysia Ethereum community, right? <laughs> and so. To some extent, it's like the harms of Bitcoin maximalism have been limited by the fact that Bitcoin maximalism kind of had a hard time um, getting out of its uh, kind of relatively U.S.-centered cultural bubble, and uh, you know there is also this non-maximalist side of uh, Bitcoin land in the wider world. But like you get even better results, I feel when. Uh, you know, you don't have those kinds of downsides at all. Is there a way to blend these things together, Vitalik? Is there a way to get the best of both worlds? Because we have one strength of maximalism, which is just this sort of intolerant minority who is steadfast in their values. And we risk when we go to kind of big tent, the other side of things, possibly an erosion mm -hmm. of the values that make this industry so special. Like, is there some way to blend these two together? What do you think is the best possible outcome for this and the best possible strategy? Sure. So I think um, one really important thing to keep in mind here is that like this isn't just a one-dimensional thing where like there's a slider where um, you know zero is uh, like totally maximalist and you hate everyone who doesn't totally agree with you and uh, 100 is like you know the standard kind of like straw man adage of like your mind is so open that your brains fall out <laughs> and like we're trying to pick 50. Like the reality is that it's a very multi-dimensional space, right? There's lots of different ways to be more maximalist. There's lots of different ways to be less maximalist. There's uh, different uh, ways to be maximalist that some of which are more harmful and less beneficial. Others are less harmful and more beneficial. Um, so like I'll give one example, right? Like one example of something that I think is relatively low cost and high value to be intolerant of is uh, scams, right? And uh, one example I can give of this is uh, a couple of months ago, I was talking with a friend who was in the uh, non-blockchain internet decentralization and freedom space, right? So like, you know, the kind of space that really cares about things like uh, Tor, um, iPhone jailbreaking, like um, open source Android versions, BitTorrent, um, you know, that cluster of things, right? And a lot of people in that cluster of things are very uh, or partially anti-crypto. And I basically asked him why. And uh, this person replies basically that the people in that community generally consider the crypto community to either be too scammy or to be far too tolerant of scams. Hmm. So I think uh, basically what's going on here is that uh, the uh, Ethereum community does, I think, have this uh, vibe of uh, you know valuing harmony, valuing friendship, valuing uh, people getting along. And uh, people aren't going to be willing to just like directly point fingers and uh, like criticize specific projects and call them scams because you know ultimately it's an integrated community and these people are friends of your friends and like what's the you know there's a high cost to kind of disrupting relationships that way especially if uh, you know you end up being wrong right so criticizing someone for being a scam is like a big risk and uh, you know a lot of people are not willing to take that risk and kind of that activity is not valorized enough to make up for the risk. Uh, so 
the challenge, um, basically, if the Ethereum community was uh, better at uh, being intolerant toward the uh, scammy aspects of it, then, you know, it could win friends, uh, ironically enough, among this uh, non-cryptocurrency uh, and internet decentralization uh, space that is uh, currently kind of somewhat turned off by it. Uh, so... You know, the question is like, how do we actually do this, right? The problem is that scamminess is always a spectrum. And like the Ethereum community is tolerant toward total scams. But like, what about things that are, you know, not quite scams in the sense that they don't really lie, but, you know, they are kind of sketchy and they're basically just money grabs and they don't really align well with the project's values. So I, I'm going to like poke into just one very random example. Um, so yeah, just yesterday, I found out about this NFT project um, that's called uh, weirdvitalic.com. This was just totally done without my permission. Like someone just did it, right? And uh, I just like found out about it. So meet Vitalik, 10,000 one-of-a-kind drawn collection of Vitalik Buterin, Board Weird Vitalik Club. Um, so this is just totally a ripoff of the board, a yacht club. It's a collection of 10,000 randomly generated board Vitalik Buterin NFTs. <laughs> and there's normal Vitalik, uh, which for some reason is wearing some kind of weird red hat. There's zombie Vitalik, uh, there's alien Vitalik, and the, and so forth, right? Uh, so I look at this kind of page, um, and one of the things that is in my head is, uh, you know, do I like this project? And my answer is like pretty decidedly no. Like honestly, you know, these people used my name without my permission. Uh, these uh, people are quite honestly making a project that is like very not in line with my own values. Uh, because literally, like within the last four, three weeks, I've had like multiple interviews, podcasts, like everywhere, criticizing this idea of, uh, you know, hey, we're just uh, going to use Ethereum in order to make $3 million monkeys. And like, I've even publicly talked a lot about like what I think good uses of NFTs would be, right? Like, one simple example is, um, at least if you're going to make an NFT, you know, donate some portion of the proceeds to charities, right? Like, okay, fine, you know, human beings have an insatiable need to gamble, but like, if we're going to gamble, like, let's actually, um, you know, leverage that kind of energy, um, and let's kind of like, like, attach the demand to the supply and let's actually, yeah, you know, fund some public goods. So this project, like, if it really wanted to kind of, you know, authentically attempt to express some, you know, Vitalik values, like, it could have sort of really easily done that. But as far as I can tell from the website, there's absolutely no evidence that, like, there's any attempts to, um, you know, fund public goods, fund charities. Uh, there's, like, basically no attempt whatsoever to recognize anything about the kind of my personality or who I am that's different from, like, say, CZ or Justin Sun. So, like, from all of these angles, like, honestly, I, uh, you know, deeply dislike the project. These people should probably be really happy that I'm kind of too, uh, I guess, libertarian and anti-litigious to, like, wants to really go after them and sue them. Uh, but, uh... but isn't this the exact problem, Vitalik? <laughs> right. You talk about the challenge of calling out scams. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're even talking about it right now, mm -hmm. right, is like brings more attention to the project itself. Mm. And this is sort of what the troll, what yeah. the project actually wants is just right. like not necessarily good press or bad press, but just like somebody paying attention mm -hmm. to it. Because in crypto, attention yeah. equals capital equals cash out potential. Yeah. This is why it's so difficult to call out mm -hmm. scams in some of these projects. Do you see a solution to this? Yeah, no, it's definitely a good point. Like, I think uh, the question of, like, how we as a community can respond to this sort of stuff more, right? So 
the challenge here is uh, basically like uh, one definitely is um, you know how can we kind of very strongly signal to the community that like if you're into this sort of stuff you know you're not really part of like the the kind of community that we want to see um, but then once you start saying those things then you know there's the accusation of like oh if you're being opinionated does that mean you're being centralized or opinionated opinionated and centralized synonyms um, like I think they're not but um, you know there are people who think that they are there's uh, definitely this question of like how do we call out individual scams? Like, I think ultimately calling out is not like the right response, right? In this particular case. So, like, I think calling out is an acceptable response in some specific contexts. So, like, for example, if you discover that some particular project that already is well known um, actually like really seriously compromises on decentralization or compromises on security in some way, then like, you know, yeah, maybe like some kind of takedown post is really warranted. If this is like some, you know, seventh tier nobody thing, then like calling them out individually, yes, like it totally does raise their individual profile. Like we need more responses that kind of cover like the whole blanket, right? You know, you want to to be really sure that like conferences are not promoting these kinds of things, or if conferences are promoting these things, then the ecosystem should not be promoting those conferences. Like basically, yeah, just wants to have a yeah, a culture where people are more encouraged to kind of really steer clear of uh, this kind of stuff. And so steer clear of money grabs, steer clear of projects that are much more centralized than they claim that they actually are, kind of much more hawkish about like, hey, doesn't this thing actually run on a centralized server? And if so, like, is this really even a dApp? And this can't be something that kind of comes from on high and kind of, like, shoots a laser at specific things that it discovers because, like, yes, yeah, so like, a laser, like, on the internet is just a spotlight and you have the Streisand effect and all that stuff, right? <laughs> so the challenge is, uh, like, I think the response uh, has to be one that is more of this kind of cultural change at uh, every level, I guess. And in fairness, like, I do actually think that uh, many parts of the Ethereum community really do have this, right? Like, there are plenty of uh, high-quality Ethereum events. There are plenty of uh, events that don't highlight this kind of stuff and that, like, actually highlight really meaningful stuff. And there's plenty of people who even, you know, get the an external vibe of Ethereum being a scammy thing, and then they go to a conference, like, they go to DEF CON or whatever, and they're like, oh, wow, you know, these people are actually really, uh, you know, amazing, cool, and, real, and uh, legit people, right? So... The question is like how to make that experience more scalable. Yeah. I think one strategy I've seen you take in the past, and I think we've tried to take at times, is rather than shooting the laser beam at projects that look like scams, we shoot the laser beam or the spotlight on things that we really love mm. and things that are decent. And you try to drown out mm -hmm. all of the other things by shooting the spotlight on the real decentralized projects, the cool stuff that's going on, that the, the projects that are taking kind of long-term perspectives on the space. And you try to seek to drown out all of the rest, but mm. even that is so difficult in crypto mm -hmm. when so much of the space is driven by attention, narrative, and price and not some of these like fundamental greater goods that I think many of us are here for. I think that's um, definitely a very good point. Like actually, yeah, giving the friendly spotlight to projects that are great. In a lot of ways, it's a, an excellent substitute to like kind of trying to go after every single thing that I guess is uh, anti-great. Um, and uh, that's definitely something that we can do more of too. I think uh, probably 
the biggest um, ideological barrier uh, between us and that more of that being happening is this idea um, that uh, Ethereum being a neutral platform means that we as people have to be neutral between applications. Mm. And that's like totally not true, right? Like I think uh, there is this kind of healthy dynamic in the uh, Ethereum space where, you know, yes, the bottom layer should be credibly neutral. The bottom layer should not, um, you know, give discounts to applications that uh, like Vitalik Buterin or Peter Salagi or whoever else, um, you know, think uh, kind of represent the values of Ethereum land and give gas penalties to, um, you know, weird kind of monkey clubs that misuse my name. Uh, <laughs> but uh, at the same time, like there needs to be this higher community layer that actually does uh, do those things. Like figuring out like a uh, culture that is uh, both willing to be like more positively opinionated in those ways um, and uh, also accepts mistakes happening in that opinionatedness is, uh, I think, uh, an important step that we can uh, try to take. I think the accepting mistakes part is very important, right? Uh, because like there have been times when, for example, you know, I've been criticized for like supporting some projects in the roll-up space and then people are like, oh, why don't you support me as well? And uh, just like answer honestly, like what would you prefer out of Vitalik Buterin? Would you prefer A, uh, Vitalik Buterin stays neutral and uh, does not talk about like specific projects and just says like roll-ups are good? Or would you prefer Vitalik Buterin to like mention specific names and mention specific good things that are being done by specific names? I mean, you know, even at risk of uh, sacrificing a kind of some, I guess, neutrality of the persona. Like what's your preference? Yeah, I think when people ask you to talk about their projects and they're asking you like, hey, like be more open, name more names. What they're really asking for is, you know, just mention my project's name mm -hmm. and not really other projects' names, just me. And I, so I think it's coming from a selfish place for the people to request for you to talk about specific areas of crypto. Yeah, I mean, personally for me, I definitely prefer B, right? Which is like, there's so much noise in the space and so many individuals and people who are on kind of the the more grifter side of the spectrum in crypto, voices that talk about decentralized values get drowned out, right? And so even if like you don't highlight all of the potential projects that have these decentralized values, you can shine a spotlight at them and that could be sort of an example. You're almost like socially signaling to others outside of crypto what is important as well. So for me, I think sometimes complete neutrality on these projects is viewed by others outside of the industry as a complacency or enablement. And I think that's a greater risk at this point in crypto. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, as you can probably tell, I've kind of intuited a similar thing, I guess. Um, but, you know, ultimately I'm only one person, like at this point Ethereum is so big that like I can't, you know, track all the industries. And uh, so, like this isn't uh, just a me thing, right? I think this is a kind of, you know, whole Ethereum culture thing that people should, you know, more actively promote examples of uh, th of things that are in their values, right? And like, that means lots of things. Like that might mean, for example, that uh, 
you know, if you really value decentralization, then you should like, you know, promote like which specific applications actually do a really good job of like having a fully serverless UI, for example, uh, where, you know, the UI is like just a get page on IPFS or whatever. If you value like, uh, you know, global um, inclusion, then, um, you know, you should go and talk about your favorite uh, crypto project from Latin America, from Africa or from wherever else. Um, you know, if you value like inclusion of women, then, you know, talk about your favorite women run projects. And it's like different people in Ethereum land do have like different focuses, which I think is a, yeah, like a healthy thing. And like uh, often those focuses can kind of complement each other. Like even um, they don't really need to be at odds. Um, so yeah, I do think that, um, you know, the more kind of spotlight we give to projects that like really try to just like satisfy values in general, then definitely the further away we get from things that are just like completely, you know, corrupt and, and uninteresting. Vitalik, I want to get your perspective on Ethereum maximalism mm -hmm. in 2021 and 2022. This is something that Ryan and I have really had to face with because we have the largest podcast newsletter mm -hmm. in crypto. And so there's a lot of attention that goes on to what we cover. And we kind of alluded to our strategy of rather than talking negatively about things that we deem to be too centralized, we'd rather put the spotlight on the things that embody our values. But then other alternative ecosystems, like the newer ecosystems that have arisen, have started to claim that, you know, Ryan and I are just like ETH maxis, and we only care about Ethereum, and we don't like pay attention to any of these alternative layer ones. And while that's in the, if you historically look at the content that we have produced that's largely been true but also i've been at the same time concerned that there is just this malicious branding of a lot of ethereum people as maxis in order to like discredit them to like kind of say like oh like you can't trust these people for their information because they're biased because they're just a bunch of eth maxis and so i'm wondering to get your take on how you see ethereum maximalism manifesting itself in 2021 and 2022 if you think it's good what about it do you think it's bad and then how do you think about like how these alternative layer ones have contended with like this growing hardliners in the ethereum community mm, it's definitely a good question and definitely an uh, important question so i think uh, the way that i understand how ethereum maximalism uh, first arose right is that uh, for the first few years of uh, Ethereum's history, Ethereum culture was like very open and uh, welcoming and uh, even like supportive of uh, non-Ethereum um, blockchains to a very uh, like great extent that might even be difficult to fathom today. So like, you know, there were Ethereum conferences, like even including DEFCON, that would just allow other blockchains to have, you know, presentations at them, um, like presentations of those other blockchains. And... Uh, you know, a lot of people in the Ethereum community also really valued collaboration with those other blockchains. And a lot of people saw themselves as being Ethereum people and, you know, other chain people at the same time. And things kind of seemed fairly happy. But the thing that really kind of shocked and probably hurt a lot of people is that a lot of the other L1 teams, there was this uh, disingenuousness uh, to them. Like, so definitely not all teams, right? There are, uh, I think, definitely um, layer ones that are not Ethereum that are honorable. And there's quite a few of those. Like I think Zcash is one of my favorites. I talk about it a lot. There's definitely others too. Um, so the problem with these uh, projects is that like when they go to Ethereum conferences and like events and speak and uh, sponsor, um, they would kind of 
virtue signal about how they are, you know, sister chains and friends of Ethereum. But then when they have private discussions with VCs, they would basically tell to the VCs like, hey, Ethereum is actually just like a ball of crap. And, uh, you know, Vitalik is a dropout who doesn't know anything. And like we have actual professionals TM and top talents TM from Silicon Valley TM. And we're just totally going to pwn them. <laughs> uh, right. Like uh, th there definitely was this uh, kind of big... Uh, divide between the uh, Ethereum-facing posture and the uh, VC-facing uh, posture of uh, a lot of these projects. And ultimately, you know, people talk to each other and uh, this uh, duplicitousness got discovered. Um, and so the like, friendliness toward other L1s got replaced with this more, uh, like, I guess, Ethereum maximalist mentality where other L1s are viewed as being kind of hostile attempts to uh, drag projects away from Ethereum by default. So I think uh, there are aspects to that that were just unavoidable. There are aspects to that that uh, I do think are excessive um, and that lack empathy for a lot of users. Like, uh, like I do disagree a lot with, like, for example, what uh, Sergio uh, said in that uh, podcast with uh, Hasu about five months ago. Um, but I do think there is something to um, this uh, idea that, uh, you know, Ethereum culture is... Uh, optimized around like people who are in Ethereum already and doesn't uh, like do enough to empathize with uh, people who are currently not yet Ethereum people. Um, and, um, you know, they see this uh, kind of relatively closed gatekeeping community. Um, and when those other projects go to other layer ones because of problems with fees, the response from the Ethereum side is like, hey, those things are scams. And if you like them, then, you know, therefore you are someone who likes uh, scams and you're not one of us. Um, and like basically, once moralism becomes a tribe's response to everything, then that's actually a sign that that tribe is really into having serious problems. Mm -hmm. Like I think uh, that's a lesson that's true in a lot of cases. Like you know, once again, this is one of those that's uh, pr ha probably has a lot of truth in uh, geopolitics as well. Uh, so I do think that Ethereum culture needs to be empathetic of the fact that lots and lots of people, especially people in the global south, especially poor people, especially you know the kinds of people that we are in theory trying to empower. Like lots of people really don't have the funds to be able to pay $24.18 just to move some ETH around and make a simple transaction. And if they want to play around with blockchains now, and therefore to them, um, you know, something like uh, either just having an account on Binance and, uh, you know, trading back and forth inside of Binance or going on, on Solana or going on BSC or whatever, like if those are the best choices for them, then like fine. Like I think we, like real should even be kind of happy and uh, view those places as training grounds rather than uh, you know viewing those as a kind of hostile countries that are gathering strength and that are going to make a full military assault against uh, you know the Ethereum castle at some point. Like we do have to be empathetic about the fact that you know Ethereum platform in its uh, current situation does have limits for all of these people uh, and. Uh, like the correct response to them is not, um, you know, oh, if you don't see how Ethereum has this holy factor called decentralization that makes the $24 transactions worth it, then, you know, you're not in. <laughs> Our response should be like, hey, you know, yes, you know, we do believe that the internet of money should not cost more than five cents per transaction. Like I stand by that statement and I think lots of people stand by that statement. But the way in which Ethereum is solving that problem as a community is layer twos. And, you know, here are some layer twos that are already in alpha. You can go use them. And here's like the yeah, roadmap for how those layer twos are going to get better and for how Ethereum is going to get better to be able to support more of them. 
So like that's probably an update that I guess Ethereum culture needed to have five months ago. I'm not sure if it needs to have it anymore. Like I feel like in the last few months, I don't know, maybe the fee discourse disappeared on its own for a little bit just because like gas prices went down and uh, like ETH prices went down and like, what is it at like 20 or 30 GUI at this point? Uh, actually, let's check right now what the, the yeah. I think it's got a 42 GUI average this week. Oh, it's gone up. It's back up to between 50 and 100 now. But, you know, for a, for a long time, and it's, uh, I think for the last month, it has been much lower than it was like say, yeah, in October and November, right? But that's not something that's guaranteed to last right. is, uh, I guess, uh, one thing that I would say, right? Um, and so, like, really highlighting and encouraging, like, good scaling projects and, like, pushing uh, people to build infrastructure to make rollups better, pushing people to actually make good rollups, pushing people to move toward, um, you know, taking off the training wheels when they're ready and actually having full decentralization and all of these things, pushing um, wallet providers to continue to uh, take uh, decentralized approaches and I mean, try to have like clients for Ethereum and to remain decentralized even in the concept of all these layer two platforms. So like all of these things are important, right? Um, and Ethereum culture that kind of steadfastly values its core values, like that can be done without antagonizing people, right? Or at least without you know antagonizing people who don't deserve to be antagonized. And uh, the way that that can be done is through like having this uh, kind of positive focus and through like giving friendly pushes for people to actually yeah you know stick to their principles. Um, you know make sure that the decentralized apps stay decentralized. Make sure that the yeah, apps that exist today actually become cheap. You know, make sure that roll-up projects keep prioritizing uh, making their fees even lower and all of those things, right? Like these things can happen and these things do require community pressure to keep happening. And these things do require um, ongoing education to keep happening. So I think uh, there definitely is a uh, healthy way for the uh, Ethereum community to like both actually solve the problem that causes people to instead go to, um, you know, Binance Smart Chain or whatever else today. And at the same time, like by doing those actions, actually kind of collectively reaffirm its values of decentralization and show itself as a community that like really seriously and deeply cares about these things. So how do you think that we should be covering this on Bankless? And now I'm just straight up like asking mm -hmm. you for personal advice here, mm -hmm. because on one hand, like Solana, Avalanche, Terra, Binance Smart Chain have done fantastic things in getting more private keys into more people's hands, which is just fundamentally bullish for humanity. We love having more people have more private keys and all the things that come associated with it. And a lot of people are just interested in those ecosystems. And as content producers, we definitely want to serve those people that are interested in those ecosystems. Mm -hmm. But I have a hard time squaring it with some of the properties of the actual layer one blockchains. For example, like the Avalanche blockchain, you can't see the mempool that's got a private mempool mm -hmm. unless you are staking a very large amount of the AVAX token, which makes it prohibitive for the average individual to actually be a part of consensus. And one of the core bankless philosophies is that if you can't participate in consensus, you're the product, right? So like the MEV, the order flow, the transaction flow becomes something that only high capital AVAX token stakers can access. And the same property is true for Solana. And then we got Terra, which is delegated proof of stake, which we've seen like the cartelization of delegated proof of stake systems and the centralization of token supply. And these are really complicated subjects that newcomers who are just playing with their low fee and like DeFi games 
don't really care about or want to hear about. And so like we struggle with like covering these things when there's totally demand to hear about these ecosystems, yet it's harder to explain like how, in our opinions, the long-term games are not being played by these newer L1 ecosystems. And mm -hmm. Rhina and I are here inherently for trying to find the blockchain that can play the longest term game possible. Mm -hmm. So how do you think we should cover these things? Sure. Um, so I think uh, one part of my answer is that like, yes, you know, we want to have a lot of positivity, but also it's okay to be critical. And especially for like bigger projects, I think uh, it's important to be critical and to continue like saying and making the arguments for why like chains that make sacrifices are making uh, sacrifices that are ultimately unsustainable. And at some point, you know, they're probably going to have to do rollups anyway. Um, so that's one part of the response. The other part of the uh, response is like, uh, like, I think for every unit of time that you spend uh, criticizing other people for not standing up to values that you think are important, you should spend three minutes of time thinking about how, kind of how your own community can do a better job of sticking up to those values. And so I do think that um, like some you know, like internal facing discourse on praising projects within the Ethereum space that help Ethereum maintain those values is something that uh, we absolutely should do a lot more of. And like that's, I think, true is at all layers of the stack. Like it's true for applications. Um, like one example that I mentioned is like one way to tell if an application does a good job of being decentralized is, is the UI fully serverless? And uh, if the UI is serverless, then, you know, you know that they're probably doing things well. So, you know, which projects have serverless UIs? Uh, try to kind of elevate them more and like actually talk about the fact that like, hey, these projects actually have serverless UIs and this is something that we should be celebrating. Um, Vitalik, really quick, sure. serverless UIs. What do you mean by that for, for oh, folks that aren't technical? Sure, I'm sorry. This is, uh, this is my attempts to kind of capture the language from um, Amazon AWS and their serverless thing, which in my opinion does not deserve the, the word. But basically what I mean is like a UI that re really does not require centralized servers to operate, right? Like where generally the way it works is you just have a static web page that is... Uh, you know, has HTML, has JavaScript, and all that it talks to is the blockchain, right? Now, maybe it could talk to other decentralized services as well, but like everything that it talks to should not be dependent on like specific servers existing um, in order for the UI to function, right? So it's like if the ba if the developers disappear, if like other kind of key participants um, in the ecosystem disappear, the DApp should be able to just keep running. One good example of this is. Um, the Uniswap UI, I think right now it's not fully serverless, but it's kind of serverless backup in that like they do I, like have a server that does some things like optimizing order routing. But, you know, even if all that stuff disappears, there's like local algorithms that can do that stuff as well. Uh, it basically just is, you know, a web page that can talk to the blockchain directly. There's even an interface to Uniswap v2, uh, uniswap.ninja, uh, which is basically just, uh, you know, totally not run by Uniswap, the organization, and it's a static page. Uh, so things like that are kind of examples of how Uniswap actually, you know, really does like, follow the principles of uh, being a good decentralized application. Yeah, so it's things like that. That's kind of your encouragement mm -hmm. is highlighting things like that. You know, I'm wondering, I guess just to, you know, tie off this section in a rebuttal to Bitcoin maximalism. There were two other points in the article, which is like currency is the main app. Mm. This whole thing is about money. Mm -hmm. And also this focus on 
I guess, simplicity mm-hmm. of the underlying base chain rather than the complexity that Ethereum adds. I'm assuming you think that's not quite the right argument, mm-hmm. but like, how would you rebut that? Where do you think the balance is in terms of complexity, in terms of focus on use cases? Sure. So I think, like, first of all, we do need to have, um, I think, a lot of respect for currency as an application. I'm like, I think we definitely can't go too far in our rhetoric and saying, oh, currency is lame and boring and Ethereum is cool because it does derivatives and ENS and, and uh, decentralized autonomous organizations and reputation systems. Because like ultimately, yes, like if you look at what people are doing today, currency is providing more real value to people than all of those other things combined, right? So you do need to have some respect for that. Um, though with, I guess, one big caveat is that I think there's a lot of synergies between the currency use case and other use cases. So ENS is one very good example, right? Um, like if you want to send me, um, you know, assets on Ethereum, then in your wallet, when you type in the who you're sending to, you just have to type in Vitalik.eth, right? And once you do that, you're sending me assets uh, and uh, it's, you don't have to like go copy paste a 40 character two character address. You don't have to like ask me for an address. You don't have to do fancy stuff. It's like you are just sending your assets to me, right? So that's like an example of a synergy between, uh, I guess here, a decentralized currency and a, a decentralized domain name system, um, like uh, ENS. Um, and uh, like ultimately, um, you know, currencies are powerful for DAOs. DAOs become more powerful if there are crypt- uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of ways in which uh, these kinds of applications uh, do interact with each other. Um, and also, to some extent, I think we do want to push back and say, well, well, actually, applications other than cryptocurrency have had an impact. So like, for example, one of the benefits of NFTs, I think, is that NFTs actually have brought a lot of people into Ethereum who would not otherwise be in crypto, like the kinds of people that would be totally turned off by Bitcoin maximalist mentality. Like, they love Ethereum because they love NFTs. And... Uh, I think that's something amazing, right? Like the fact that, you know, the Ethereum community does have these uh, different aspects of itself in order to satisfy the uh, values of different sub-communities is, uh, I think, one of the beauties of the Ethereum ecosystem, right? So that would be one part of my response. And then I think the, in terms of like the question of, uh, well, does focusing exclusively on being money make for better money? I actually feel like, the Ethereum a kind of ecosystem philosophy, like technology kind of stack already has a very good response to this line of argument, which is basically Ethereum's two layer structure, right? Like the Ethereum layer one is something that strives to be this relatively you know, simple base layer and uh, that really strives to you know, be simple in the long term, uh, once uh, some of the big changes that are made and not changing that much, basically just to, you know, move some ETH around, be able to be verified fully by a, a regular node and all of those things. And then there's layer two. And layer two provides the scalability. Layer two is where the applications exist. Layer two is uh, where, you know, people in the future will be playing around with, um, you know, the prediction markets and the NFTs and the DAOs and all of the fun stuff. And so... You do kind of have this separation where, you know, you have this layer one and the layer one culture, I think in the long run can really be a culture that is uh, protective of, uh, you know, ETH the money, uh, protective of the uh, simplicity of the protocol, protective of and even striving to improve the ability to run like a very minimal node that verifies everything within the Ethereum chain, while at the same time, layer two is this kind of 
expansive, um, you know, pie in the sky um, thing where people are just keep being excited about the new kinds of functionality that you can add on top of it. Um, and I think like the separation is like pretty real in a bunch of ways, right? So like there's a debate within the MEV community where some people within the MEV community would even argue that like a full move to layer two might be something that makes MEV not a problem anymore because layer twos can capture the MEV. Mm. Now, like this, I, mm. like if that works out, right, then that would be an example of how like the layer one, layer two separation actually does end up kind of protecting the layer one technology. But uh, I guess if that doesn't pan out, then the other thing that we're working on is proposer builder separation, where I mean, basically you do kind of separate this layer of like optimizing to make the best possible blocks from the layer of like being a validator, which is supposed to be a dumb functionary that's just running a node, right? So I think uh, Ethereum culture in general, like it really yeah, does have this aspect of uh, trying to create this layer separation between like the parts of the ecosystem that I think in the future really can value simplicity, really can value like mathematical purity, beauty, and all of these things that Bitcoiners like about Bitcoin. While at the same time, you have this other section of the ecosystem that does kind of like enjoy revel in and uh, get the benefits of the uh, you know funk power and complexity. And the two like do have like kind of enough of a degree of separation between them that they don't interfere with each other, but the two are still sort of part of the same ecosystem in such a way that they're able to complement each other, right? Um, so I think this is a, to some extent like a metaphor for like the Ethereum community's strength, which is like the Ethereum community does get its strength from diversity. And it does get strength from the fact that it has these different kind of sub-communities that can have like different values. And I think in the long term, and even like starting very, very soon, it would be amazing if Ethereum has a kind of core development culture that really values these ideas of like, you know, safety, security, mathematical simplicity, like making it really easy for every node to count up the, the total ETH supply if that's what people want and all of these things. And while... At the same time, you have these kind of spokes in the ecosystem that uh, focus on the other stuff, right? Like, I think that kind of technical and cultural future really is in sight for us. And I think, like, that kind of future, like, it can get the benefits of Ethereum culture, or it can't really get the benefits of, like, maximalist culture in terms of the way, like, it, it keeps a core protected. But at the same time, also get the benefits of this culture that's more willing to reach out to the outside world, appeal to different groups of people, uh, kind of present itself as uh, like actually being able to help many groups of people and giving them opportunities to participate and uh, really can have both. Can have both. That's a great articulation of it. And I think maybe the philosophy underlying social philosophy of Ethereum. So we made the case for Bitcoin maximalism and maximalism in general, and then we just made the case against it the rebuttal of it. And I'm wondering, Vitalik, if we've kind of landed in this place that you've talked about Ethereum before as like moderate Bitcoin values, right? Mm. Sometimes it's interesting for myself, I find myself agreeing with like Bitcoiners on so many things. Mm -hmm. And then other times I find myself agreeing with like alternative layer one chains on so many other things mm -hmm. and finding a unique place maybe in the middle. Is that the path for Ethereum in your mind is this moderate position between communities? I mean, I feel like that's kind of been what I've been saying in a lot of things all along, right? Like that, uh, you know, Ethereum kind of is uh, the, the decentralized center. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have extremes on one side and extremes on the other side. And the Ethereum community is, uh, I think, 
one whose uh, greatest virtue is uh, really doing its best to kind of move toward having the best of both. Absolutely. Vitalik, this has been a fantastic conversation with you. I think we've definitely gone through this topic in every way. Sometime we'd love to have you back to talk a little bit about EIP 4844. Mm. That's been in the back of our minds as kind of a mystery box that the bankless community wants to unlock as well as dank sharding, but know that's a while off, but we'd love to have you back and talk about that. Also glad that you got to know Tom Brady (laughs) (laughs) recently. So that's been a lot of fun too. Vitalik, it's been fantastic as always to have you on. We appreciate you. No, thank you very much. It's been great to be here. Bankless Nation, we have a few resources for you, of course. One is the post that we went through, which is the case for Bitcoin maximalism that Vitalik wrote. We'll include a link in the show notes to that, as well as the Time Magazine article that we referenced and the Slate Star Codex article, Survive and Thrive Theory of the Political Spectrum. So you will be able to access all of those links that we referenced in the show notes. As always... None of this has been financial advice. ETH is risky. Crypto is risky. DeFi, everything else is risky. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. 